right from when I was young, in, the, in my 20s, I've always appreciated how lucky I am to be able to head down the pier, jump on a boat, head out into the bay, and it's different every day, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful being on the water. Um, Dad said to me, once a fisherman, always a fisherman. Well, that was the case. I mean, I just love being out on the water. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Port Phillip Bay in Victoria boasts a vibrant history of commercial fishing, particularly in the realm of scallops and mussels. Indigenous communities such as the Bunawarung and the Wanjarang tribes depended on the bay's abundant marine resources, including the scallops and mussels, for sustenance. But it wasn't until the 19th century, with the rapid European settlement and the rise of Melbourne as a bustling city, that commercial fishing really took off. Scallop fishing gained momentum during this time, employing traditional methods like hand dredging and sail-powered boats. As Melbourne's population grew, so did the demand for seafood, propelling the commercial fishing industry forward. Technological advancements in the mid-20th century, such as steam-powered vessels and mechanised dredges, revolutionised the fishing processes, leading to increased efficiency and larger-scale operations. With the industry's growth, concerns about overfishing and sustainability emerged. Fisheries management authorities implemented regulations like catch limits, seasonal closures and licensing requirements to protect scallop stocks and maintain a balance. The industry experienced both periods of growth and decline due to factors like the overfishing, environmental changes and the cyclic nature of scallop populations. Alongside the scallop fishing industry, the mussel farming sector had experienced significant growth in Port Phillip Bay. Mussel farming has become a thriving industry due to the bay's favourable conditions and the increasing demand for sustainable seafood. Lance Whiffen, often regarded as the grandfather of the Australian mussel industry, was a scallop fisherman who saw the opportunity in mussels early. He recognised the bay's nutrient-rich waters and ideal temperature as conducive to cultivating mussels. My name's uh, Lance Whiffen, I'm in the Geelong region. Uh, we've got our mussel farm at Port Arlington, which is out on the Ballerine Peninsula, and that's where I was born and bred. So I was a dairy farmer there on the peninsula. My par- I mean, my parents were, my whole family was, they were sort of fourth generation. And and then I moved into uh, fishing and sculping in that area. So uh, that's where I'm, I haven't really moved far. What happened was in the 60s, um, the uh, Port Phillip Bay became a, um, a new scallop um, sort of industry. It just sort of cranked up early, I'd say early 60s. And it had never happened before. So boats came from Tasmania and everywhere. And I was like a kid at the time, so I didn't know much about it, except that a lot of people were investing in it because it was, it was a bit of a gold mine thing, gold rush, fever. Um, and my, my dad and uncle and his his sons, they, they invested in, in little, little old boats and stuff and, and so they, they did have a connection to the scallop industry and we had, of course, many, many friends that were um, in, the, in the scallop industry because it was, a, you know, locally at Port Arlington, a lot of, there were a lot of boats. Um, so back in those days, there were like hundreds of boats in Port Phillip Bay. But my background is 
the Ballerine Peninsula when I was a kid. Um, the road that I lived on, Church Road, it was just all dairy farms, mixed farming. So the dairy farms were 160 acres down to 80 acres. Some farms were as small as 40 acres and people could even make a living off that. It was mixed farming, um, growing onions and spuds and peas as well as um, as milking the cows. So milking the cows was the, the bed, bread and butter. That was That's what brought in the money to uh, feed your family and the other stuff was just to top it up and if you did well, you might buy a car out of it. The area was very poor. People went to work in Geelong and on, school, on, on, on buses. A lot of people didn't have cars back then. Um, but then as, as I was sort of going through my school years, you know, Dad would say, you know, don't ever think you're going to come back on the farm, boy, because uh, things are changing. You know, these farms are too small. Uh, we, we won't be out. We won't be viable. And, and um, by the 70s, that, that became the case. Um, farming became unviable out there. Collins Street farmers were moving in and buying up land and, and there were vineyards going up and you know, the whole structure, of the, the whole uh, sort of dynamics of the place was, was changing and tourism hadn't really taken off much then but you, there were sort of hints of it, you know, there were talks of it but the things just didn't really move. I went to school, went off to uni and I wasn't much good at uni. Uh, I was doing echo and legal studies and... Cripes, um, I'd be looking out the window thinking, geez, it's a good day. I, I, wish, I wish I was out hay carting. I reckon we could make a few bucks out of that. So I was probably never going to make it as, a, uh, as an academic. Um, and then I came home and I, one summer when I was uh, – I said to Dad, why, why don't we buy a skull boat? Like I didn't have any money, of course, and, and the industry had really flattened out. It had been dead for quite a few years, but they were just starting to catch a few. And there were a few boats for sale for not much money. And, um, and Dad said, okay. So we went halves. He, he, paid, he paid all the money and, and I, I uh, paid him back probably within six months I paid back my half. Anyway, um, I became a scold fisherman and, and loved it and went on to build new boats and buy another boat. And we had two boats and licenses to go everywhere and then – we started fighting the anglers and um, other sort of residents of, um, of Victoria and started fighting politicians. You know, no one really wanted big commercial operations in Port Phillip Bay. And, you know, Melbourne surrounds Port Phillip Bay. So all the constituents were quite happy to vote Sculpies out of the bay. So it wasn't – it was a, a very um, – I don't know, it was a very popular thing for Jeff Kennett to do, to, to ban sculpt fishing. Um, so I could see that was, it was early 90s that he banned us. So I'd been sculpting all those years up until then. Um, and I loved it, you know, like it was a great, like, and we were trying, we were trying to rationalise the industry. It was difficult. It was uh, run by uh, two-thirds Greek and one-third um, sort of, Caucasian Aussies and um, and the two groups we we used to fight a bit, um, but we were sort of we were sort of coming to agreement that we needed to get the the boat numbers right down, and and we were working with Jeff Coleman, he was minister at the time, and we we're working with him to rationalise the industry, and um, and they were guaranteeing that it would 
continue. So I went out and bought another license, and we were going to. I wanted to be a part of this new um, new industry that was only going to have a few boats in it, and. Uh, and then I was coming back from a, a, a tennis holiday um, on a long weekend. It was the Grand Prix, the first Grand Prix. And Jeff Kennett stood up at the Grand Prix and said, I'm banning scold fishing from Port Phillip Bay. So um, that was the end of it. So then he passed legislation so we couldn't sue for um, um, – we, we couldn't sue for compensation. Um uh, and that took two years, so we were able to still fish for another two years, and then and then we were gone. And he paid us out on the on the license that I bought um, at, at at that time that I was going. We were going to rationalise. That's what all the licenses were bought out. So our boats and our our lifetime of work, everything was just just wound up um, at that time. Land farming and sea farming are interconnected sectors that play vital roles in food production and sustainability. Land farming involves growing crops and raising livestock, while sea farming focuses on cultivating aquatic species. Both sectors require responsible resource management and sustainable practices to minimise environmental impact. Gaining an intimate understanding for the marine environment through careers in both land farming and wild catch fishing provided a unique opportunity for Lance. What happened was there was a small mussel industry in the bay. They used to dredge for mussels and send them to Sydney. And the people in Sydney would wash them and, and grade them and, and cook them up and put them in jars. I don't know what, but it was, a, it was quite a small, it was only a couple of boats that did it. And the trouble is the mussel beds were inside 10 metres and scalp fishing was only allowed outside 10 metres so we didn't, we didn't touch the grass beds. But mussel um, harvesting did touch the, the grass beds so they banned it. And when they banned it, they, uh, the fisheries offered water in Port Phillip Bay to, to do aquaculture, which none of us had really heard of. So anyway, they copied the New Zealand... Um, the New Zealand methods of doing it and and introduced that to people and, and about 20 people took up three hectare leases in Port Phillip Bay in, in various spots and had a crack at this copying the New Zealand thing. Well, most of it failed because we had so much to learn about the actual water we were growing it in. And I didn't start then. I started a couple of years later. I bought one of the guys out that, that went in. So the people that took it up were um, people that had been diving on rigs and stuff and were retiring and, and um, there were a few of them and uh, one was a, an eel farmer. And, you know, people had no idea of really how Port Phillip Bay operated and how rough it was and so most of that stuff just uh, turned into a big mess. Um, and, and that's when I bought in, and I bought in just to keep my guys working over the summer period um, when, when we weren't scalping. And then when scalping was banned, I started putting more effort into the muscles. And then as things went wrong, I had to invest more money because I'd say, I can fix that if I do this. And before long, I was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in a, on a business that really wasn't making anything um i was just doing that to try to make it work and like my first um, purchase was i bought the lease for twenty thousand, 
And then all of a sudden I had a look on the books and I'd spent a couple of hundred thousand. How did that happen? So the farm I bought was all broken down. So they had these plastic boys that they'd, that would get a crack in them and leak, so they filled them with foam. Then what would happen is they'd fill with water and then you couldn't get the water out because it would stay in there with the foam. And they weighed a ton and I had to get all that stuff out of there. So anyway, then I, I had a guy that was an ex skull fisherman as well and he was the fussiest guy in the world. He was a family friend and he'd had a crack at the muscle foaming but never made it work. But he instructed me on how he thought would, was the best way to actually grow the muscles. Now, other guys were using all sorts of methods. So um, imagine a fish bin and you, you cut the front of it out, then you put a hole in the bottom of the fish bin, then you tip a heap of muscles in, and then you push the muscles into that hole, and then you have a rope running in from above, and then you've got sock on the bottom. And it was was just all this sort of cottage industry stuff. And then he introduced a stainless steel funnel to me and he said, you, you need to use this and you have someone above you to pause. So actually that method that he taught me to put the muscles on the rope, we still use today. So I still grow, you know, 20, 25% of our crop, we still grow on ropes and we still do it by hand, that cottage industry way. Um, the New Zealand... Um, method of continuous ropes and um, twin long lines and stuff like that. They, we just copied it right to the to the T when they first started. And the first big blow that came in, the whole lot twisted up in a knot. And, and it just we just didn't have the right gear. We didn't have the right expertise, really. We, we were shown what to do, but Port Phillip Bay was quite different. So we, we gradually – so this guy, Bruce, Bruce Bushell, he, he actually – even, even the gear we put on, the, the anchors, the, the, the big concrete blocks, the chains we used, all that gear we put out actually worked. Um, so from his, his help really got me started. But it was all the things that happened after that that um, became the issue. For a farmer, the disappointment of producing an unsaleable first crop highlights the risks and uncertainties involved in farming. It serves as a learning experience for farmers who may need to reassess their production techniques, improve their understanding of environmental factors and implement more robust disease management and post-harvest practices. In 1987, I had my first crop and I reckon I probably had, you know, close to 100 tonne that I would have sold. Um, and we lost the whole crop. We sent them to Paul Jensen and he took the first load and he called me up and he said, uh, these taste bitter. And I said, oh, look, I don't even eat mussels. What do you mean they taste bitter? And uh, anyway, um, we tasted them and, oh, man, you couldn't, you couldn't eat these things. And then we're actually coming back, uh, we were skull fishing at the time, and the bloody skulls started tasting bitter. And then the fisheries looked into it and we had this rhizostelenia bitter taste algae bloom in the bay hadn't been seen anywhere else in the world and our mussels were bitter so then we went through the next six months tasting mussels um and we lost that whole crop i, I dropped it on the, and 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 just started again um and other people tried to hang on to the crop by re-socking and all this sort of stuff 
And that algal bloom that we had, we've never seen anything like that again. But we did see a couple of times one similar to that. So what I did, I couldn't afford to have those sort of losses. So I went to Western Port Bay and started growing mussels there. So I got to the stage there where we were growing half our crop at, um, at Flinders. And they were magnificent mussels. That only fattened, it was very oceanic. And there, um, when I say oceanic, coastal, and there'd be good ocean swell that would come in on the farm, which was tedious to work. And um, I reckon I nearly, I nearly uh, drowned twice there, but um, it was just a different place to work, really strong currents, a lot of ocean swell. And I just kept expanding there, and because the mussels were just so good. And then I, all of a sudden, their gear started to break down. And in the end, I had a full-time dive team with three guys that were working on the farm every day, charging me an absolute fortune, and I could not keep the stuff from breaking. So in the end, I sold out of that. Um, I sold that farm off, and then they introduced new water in Port Phillip Bay, which is what we call Pinnace Channel, and that's where I've got tw three 27-hectare sites now out in deep water right out in the middle of the bay, which behaves differently to the other sites. But that bitter taste algal bloom, even though we have seen little remnants of it, it's never come back like it did that, that those first couple of times. And that was back when we did have scallop fishing going on. And it was also back when uh, Werribee used to release more water into Port Phillip Bay. So I think we had a tendency to get more blooms. And I think the scallop... Uh, fishing uh, contributed to it as as also with the because uh, we also had a situation where there was a um, channel dredging at one stage and the channel dredging in the Geelong Arm where Clifton Springs farms are uh, we had a bit of taste algal bloom there that year as well so I think it's just you know um, mobilising the uh, cysts on the bottom of the bay and uh, by disturbing the bottom, you create more nutrients and, you know, those sort of things affect you. So we, we had to deal with that. That was a big one to deal with. The pride felt by a farmer upon making their first sale is a celebration of their hard work, the value they bring to their community and the deep connection they have with their crop. It marks the beginning of a rewarding journey and fuels their determination to succeed in the ever-changing and challenging world of farming, whether on the land or the sea. My first market was to uh, three kilos to the Prezian in Geelong. <laughs> I drove all the way from Port Arlington into Geelong and delivered a bucket of mussels to um, <laughs> to Jean-Paul at Le Prezian. And I just didn't know how to get this thing started, how to market our mussels. And we could not sell a mussel in Victoria. That was really slow going. I was supplying a couple of guys in Melbourne um, that yeah, they, they went broke. I mean, we, we, we went through the uh, that period of time when um, when the government removed um, the, the lunch dinners, you know, they, they brought in fringe benefits tax. The fringe benefits tax, not the G. Um, that, that just um, wholesalers dropped over. So anyone that was sort of running along on the edge of life, um, they went down. So the couple of guys that were starting to buy muscles off me, they failed then. But what actually happened for me, one of my, uh, my, my scallop processor in Melbourne, who I dealt with for donkey's years, 
was taking a couple of bins of mussels off me a couple of times a week. And he said they're just not interested in them, you know. He said they come along, run their hands through them, and they go, no, and they're, and they're buying chill-kill green lip mussels. I don't know if you remember, they used to bring them in in these little green little green boxes. And every stall in the up in the Melbourne market would have a pallet of these sitting out the front of their – and that's what everyone was using. So they're, they're actually selling mussels, but just not ours. So I went home and then I, I put our mussels into polystyrene boxes and brought them up to Dallas. And then a couple other wholesalers that I didn't know, they came up to me and said, oh, look, uh, we've got some inquiries about those boxes. Uh, a couple of other people want to try So just by simply putting it in a polystyrene box was enough to get it started. But then what happened to me was it started to really bounce hard like it was – it was really starting to move, and I had a guy called Jason Jury who was starting to buy a pallet at a time, and I'm talking about a big pallet, and then he's buying two pallets, and then other people were buying big numbers, and then I found out that they were rocking up to Sydney and going um, in opposition to my main market, which was Paul Jensen. Um, so then I had the dilemma. I was actually um, – competing against my market. And what happened is Paul Jensen ended up going broke. So we lost our main buyer in Sydney. But by that by that stage, I had two lost brothers and all these other guys starting to take our muscle direct. So that's how things changed. It was just simply putting them in a polystyrene box. The changes in the muscle farming industry in Port Phillip Bay over the past 30 years reflect the sector's commitment to innovation, sustainability, and meeting the evolving demands of consumers. By embracing new technologies, adopting best practice, ensuring product quality and prioritising environmental stewardship, the industry has positioned itself for continued growth and success in the future. We had about 20 farmers at Port Arlington. Um, a lot of smaller farmers and they would come online just for a small period of time in the year but it would cause a massive uh, headache in the marketplace. So I started selling other people's muscles and, you know, we were, we were by far the biggest operator in the, com- in, the, in the country and until we got to around year 2000 when we peaked and then all of a sudden we found it difficult to get our natural spat for. We just weren't getting enough and we're struggling to fill our farms and the smaller guys, it was worse because we, because we had so much gear in the water because our, our farms were much bigger, we could scrape mussels off our long lines and barrels and that sort of thing and get enough to put in a commercial crop, even though it wasn't as big. So the smaller guys, they just had to stop. Like, they just weren't getting enough in the water. So anyway, things weren't improving. So that's when we built the hatchery. And there were several of us got involved in that and finished up with three of us being involved in it. And that took a couple of years to get up going, um, but th- that that ended up. We, we, in the end, we got our commercial crops back again, and we got full, and we, we've been expanding, and now we've got massive amounts of spat in the bay again. So, in the year two thousand, there were about twenty farmers in the bay, and there were seventeen at Port Arlington, and now there's three at Port Arlington. So that's how times have changed. Industry aggregation in aquaculture brings numerous benefits and opportunities. By fostering knowledge sharing, expanding markets, influencing policies, developing infrastructure, 
Mitigating risks and building capacity, participants can collectively drive growth, innovation and sustainability in the sector. Through collaboration and a unified approach, an industry can unlock new opportunities and tackle challenges more effectively, positioning itself for long-term success. The relationship between Tasmanian Spring Bay Mussels and Lance's Sea Bounty business is a standout example of this strategy. I felt like I was flatlining for, for quite a long while. Um, costs were going up and um, I've got, got to go back a little bit because Spring Bay came into the into into, into the opera into the uh, mussel farming roughly the time we started having problems uh, with the spat, and Phil pretty well took over all the markets that we had in Sydney. So Pulloff Brothers and those guys that we supplied in Sydney, all of a sudden um, became Phil's customers. Um, and then what Phil did is he turned he turned up the heat a bit by introducing, you know, thermoforming, packaging and stuff. And, you know, back when when we were supplying Perlos, we were supplying loose mussels. All of a sudden, he's putting out packs that are, the mussels are a bit better cleaned because these mussels were beautiful there. And then and they were de-bearded and, oh, my God, you know. So all of a sudden, when we, we started coming back online, Perlos said, well, we, we want them this way. So they were taking some mussels off us, but nowhere as many as they used to. And then, uh, of course, uh, Pug and the boys started up over in Port Lincoln and then they, they came in with the same sort of packaging. So now what was happening is we were getting squeezed more and more away from our traditional markets, which were right up the eastern seaboard, Melbourne, and then right through to you know Sydney, right up through Queensland. We, we were losing those markets to the Pug and Spring Bay and we were locked into Melbourne and then what that did is I was competing with my other local guys here that could just throw, you know, 20 bins on the back of a ute and run them around Melbourne and 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 keep the price at it pretty low. And that's what I found then for the next several years is what I was doing was I had to hang on to Melbourne because I was struggling interstate to um, fight these other big guys. And... Um, then when I was in Melbourne, I was competing against anybody that grew mussels in Port Phillip Bay um, that could easily just go to the market, you know, in their own vehicle and um, and keep the prices low. So when Phil had started to have problems down there with a with an algal bloom, um, that's when him and I started. We, we'd been talking before that, like we felt that the bigger companies in Australia should come together and and see how we could help each other do a better job of, of marketing. Um, anyway, Phil um, Phil came to me and said, could I help him out when he had problems down there? So he would come across, package, start packing my muscles um, in, in that modern form of uh, thermoforming and, and doing a better job of my product and market them, and then I would help him out with... Um, with, with supplying his markets when uh, when he was having problems. And, of course, you know, Phil's a, a fantastic business person and, and I was very keen to um, join up with him and I trusted him absolutely. I mean, the moment I handed over my factory to him and, and he went out and built a new one, he was, he was bound, he was bound to, uh, to me because he needed muscles, but I was more bound to him because if he all of a sudden rolled over 
um, I was I was finished because my factory was shut down and um, you know I, I would have been had it. So I had to really trust him and and I do, of course. And he's a, he's a fantastic business person, so I'm really happy to be working with Phil. Pivoting from a muscle farming business to a tourism business opens up new avenues for revenue, branding, and market positioning. By leveraging the existing assets, developing unique experiences, and contributing to the local community, the business can tap into growing tourism and create a sustainable and diversified operation. This pivot offers benefits such as increased revenue, brand recognition, economic impact, educational opportunities, and long-term resilience. When, when we really struggled here, um, marketing-wise, you know, we're always looking for ways to sell more muscles and you know, Melbourne sort of it, it, it grew on itself like the, 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 the restaurant game they were so big in promoting muscles you know like they would do a um, master chef and when the ad had come on the tally to be a plate of muscles they were cooking up you know like those guys were doing so much for our industry um, and what we would do is we, we would invite them down to um, come on, out on our boats and see how we do it. And then we had guys like, you know, Ben Shuri and Matt Moran from up your way and we've had lots of, you know, some people from overseas, you know, like uh, Rennie and, um, and Rachel Koo and people like that and they would come out on the boat and they would say, this is fantastic, you know, you need to show other people what you're doing out here and uh, so we, we we always intended on doing it you know mum said she was reading a book the other day just on our local area you know sort of one of these history book things and this guy wrote in about 2005 and he must have interviewed me at the time and I, I must have said to him that Lizzie and I were wanting to do a um, a tour boat back then I didn't realize that we we're thinking about it that far back but you know we were taking journalists out, sometimes politicians, you know, all sorts of people, but it was always illegal to take them out on our work boat, illegal in that that we, we were only supposed to have people that trained uh, workers on board, you know what that's like. And um, we're always taking a risk and, and the journalists would say to us, oh, no, you need to take people out and show them this, you know, this would work as a, um, as a tourist thing. So we actually always had it in our mind, but I've got my son, Shane, my oldest son Shane, he, he works for the business and he's um, you know, he's thirty odd years old now and he's been working with he went to uni as well and and, and, and I, I mucked him up because I allowed him to work on the holidays and and then he never left either. So it, I, I sort of um, he, he's a he's a muscle farmer through and through and he's running the show now and that makes it so much easier for me to be able to do what I'm doing here with Lizzie. Um, I probably couldn't have done it. Um, if we're running the business the way we were. But now that Phil's managing all the marketing side of it and Shane's really doing a great job of managing the farm side of it, they, they only need me occasionally to help out. So it's giving us, uh, Lizzie and me, time to do this tourism thing. Like I said, something we wanted to do, the thing is when, when we've had people out there like MasterChef and stuff, sometimes they've brought down big mobs. You know, we've had 20, 30 people on board. And I could tell when we when we had that it didn't work. And when I've been out there with just half a dozen people, or a small small mob, 
it did work. People seemed to get a lot out of it. So we decided to get a boat that we could take out. Um, you know, we, we, we've set this one up to take out 12 so that we can go out, lift the lines up in comfort, and then people can sit down. They can be around the decks. They can be anywhere they like on the boat. Um, and we've got a beautiful galley to then uh, have some mussels, cook them up, and then Lizzie um, shows them a couple of recipes on how to do it. And we're able to also talk about the, um, you know, the, the health benefits of, um, of what mussel does to the environment as, as well as um, how good the product is. And those things are so important for us now. You know, the, the, the political move um, – with social media and um, all media, really, uh, things can just move that quick these days. And, and if we need to have politicians and we need to have the public, we need to have everybody on side thinking and knowing that muscle farming is a good industry to have and it's something that we want to keep because you just never know what's around the corner. You know, some, some dodgy politician, not dodgy even, but just some politician that, all of a sudden sees a benefit in banning commercial operations in Port Phillip Bay or something like that, um, and all of a sudden they could do this just to, just to win one, elec- one election and, and you could be gone. So we need people to embrace what we're doing and, and, and really get to see all aspects of, of our operation, right down to our water sampling, um, all our um, – no, it, I mean it's a beautiful organic product. You you know it, it's um, you, you can't have anything more natural and 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 healthy to eat than shellfish out of a beautiful environment. Living your entire life in a region you love fosters a strong sense of pride, belonging, and connection. It allows you to appreciate the region's natural beauty, actively engage with the community, develop expertise, and contribute to its preservation and sustainability. This lifelong commitment and deep connection to the region evoke a profound sense of pride in your role as a custodian, advocate, and contributor to the rich heritage and future prosperity. I'm in the in the place that I grew up in, and a lot of people find that boring, but I just love the area that I live in. Um, I love Point Arlington, I love the Ballerine Hills, and right from when I was a school fisherman, right from when I was young, in, the, in my 20s, I've always appreciated how lucky I am to be able to head down the pier, jump on a boat, head out into the bay, and it's different every day, you know. I mean, it's just it's just beautiful being on the water. Um, Dad said to me, once a fisherman, always a fisherman. Well, that was the case. I mean, I just love being out on the water. Um, not when it's rough, not when things are going wrong, but the rest of the time I absolutely love it. So I'm just blessed to be able to go to work every day on, in the place that I absolutely love, you know. If, if I was retired, um, I'd still rather be doing what I'm doing, you know. Lance Whiffen's role as a champion for the Victorian seafood industry is characterised by his commitment to sustainable practices, emphasis on quality, collaborative approach, market promotion and contribution to the region's economy. His leadership and advocacy have elevated the industry's profile, enhanced its reputation and positioned Victorian seafood, particularly his beloved blue mussels, as a sought-after product in both domestic and international markets.
This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.